disaster. Sit down. Sit down, Josie. You haven't been here for most of the weekend and you have not been able to do proper podcasts because of that and it's all very embarrassing. So we're backstage. Uh, Josie's about to stop even getting involved in the podcast and read her new books. It's so good. What is your new book called? Uh, Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit and I wholeheartedly recommend it to you if you are of sound, compassionate... Samigalaka. What is wrong with Sounds compassionate temperament. I don't know where I was going with it, to be honest. I was busy looking at my pencil. Well, let me segue. Josie, it's all very well looking for hope in the dark, but tonight we're going to talk about hopelessness in the dark, aren't we? Because we're going to talk about horror. Yes, we are, Robin, and we're very pleased to be joined by a guest who uh, no stranger to the frightening. Yeah, no stranger to the ghoulish. And it is, of course, uh, and when I say it is, of course, how would anyone know that from that introduction? <laughs> That's exactly the kind of thing they do. So uh, it's uh, we, we've had him on, on the show before, Rhys Shearsmith. Hello. Um, Rhys, you have got some things for us this evening, so we're doing a kind of show. There's you, Rufus Hound, yeah, and uh, Anna Savory. And what are you going to do to... Uh, uh, terrify the people. Well, I'm going to uh, revisit an, an old and unused League of Gentlemen character, which is rather interesting because uh, we and it was it's sort of a literary joke, which is why it's perfect to do it here and, and with you. But uh, it never really works on the TV, so uh, it was written by Mark Gatiss, who was going to perform it. So I'll be doing my best impression of Mick Horror, who's a, a horror author, much in the vein of. Uh, Hudson, is that his name? Yes. Yeah, Sean Hudson. So it feels Sean a little... Hudson, Hudson. And Hudson. A little bit of Guy and Smith there, there as is, well, isn't yeah, there? Absolutely, yeah. so Mick, how did you come up with the idea for this latest book? My mum said I had to do something. How do you mean? I was working in the factory, like, making boxes, and she says, Bye, Mick, what we're going to do with yous? I says, I don't know, ma'am, but I've always had good imagination. <laughs> so I just got a man to write down what I was thinking. And the snail motif, um, where did that come from? Why, I just come out into the garden and do some snails. <laughs> and you thought that they were an underexploited horror creature. It was some snails. <laughs> and I also just thought I would talk a little bit about, just because I've been reading them, um, grim fairy tales, or fairy tales in general. And I, re- I found two really horrible ones. That they never... I think the Brothers Grimm thought they were even too horrible. So there's a version, there's a couple of them that never really finished properly. They're, you know, the, the tropes are all there, but um, it's just, they're really horrible. One's called How Children Played Butcher with Each Other. That's one of them. And the other one is called The Stubborn Child. And oh, the really child is in there well, of course, yeah. with, with a, a, a bad or yeah. evil And there isn't even a moral, it's just, a, yeah, just if you're, if you're going, one of them is about burying a child alive. And the moral seems to be, if, you, if you're going to do it, make sure he's dead first. <laughs> Whoa! So that we'll be exploring that later on. This one is called The Stubborn, the Stubborn Child. There once lived a stubborn child, and he never did what his mother told him to do. And so our dear Lord 
did not look kindly on him and let him become ill. <laughs> Doctors could not cure him and before long he was lying on his deathbed. <laughs> his coffin, imagine doing this to a, your child. His coffin was being lowered into the grave and they were about to cover it with earth when suddenly one of the little arms emerged and reached up into the air. They pushed it back in again and covered the coffin <laughs> with, it's a real story, with more earth. Get down! Uh, but it was no use. The little arm kept reaching out of the grave. Fucking imagine this. Finally, his mother had to go to the grave and strike the little arm with a stick. Down! After she did that, the arm withdrew and the child finally began to rest in peace beneath the earth. Fucking, what kind of a story is that? <laughs> well, it's the moral. The moral, if you are to bury your child, make sure it is dead first. So that's that one. And then this one is, is even worse. This is called How Children Played Butcher with Each Other. And this is the second version. They did a first one. They thought, I don't know what they thought. Right. A man once slaughtered a pig while his children were looking on. As you do. When they started playing in the afternoon, one child said to the other, you do the little pig and I'll do the butcher. Whereupon he took an open blade and thrust it into his brother's neck. Their mother, who was upstairs in a room bathing their youngest child in a tub, heard the cries of the other child, quickly ran downstairs, and when she saw what had happened, drew the knife out of the child's neck, and in a rage, thrust it into the heart of the child that had been the butcher. Then she rushed back into the house to see what her other child was doing in the tub, but in the meantime, it had drowned in the bath. <laughs> The woman was so horrified she fell ill into a state of utter despair, refused to be consoled by the servants and hanged herself. <laughs> when the husband returned home from the fields, he saw this and was so distraught, he died shortly afterward. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Can you believe those in the real, um, yeah. That is, what, one of my favourite first <laughs> horror things was uh, Struelpita or Struelpita. Struelpita, we were just talking about. Dr. Heinrich Hoffman, yeah. Absolutely. I know, because I, I was thinking about um, Little Johnny Head in Air. Yeah. Yes. I like, I, I, dies. Absolutely. The punishments are so severe and yeah. so, like, For... unfair. That it's disproportionate. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you're sucking your thumb. Well, I'll show yeah, you. Sorry. Slick, a man. Slick, <laughs> snack, slick, snack. A man will come, like the Babadook, and snip them off. Yeah. Oh. And the boy who won't eat. And so yes, yes. And the one that rocks on his chair, and they sort yeah. of they break oh, his neck. Or Augustus would not eat his soup. It was Augustus, wasn't it? Yes, he was. Yeah. I bet he nicked that. Now, gloop. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That is. Well, it could be a homage. Let's give him that. You say homage. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
What was the first, in terms of children's stories and picture books, because some of you mentioned the Babadook, which I yeah. really, have you seen Babadook? Oh, it's, yeah, it's brilliant. It's great. It, yeah, it's really, really good. I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like, although, should we get into it? I thought it let itself down toward the end. Oh. Because right, I on. felt... Possible spoiler, spoiler alert. Yes. Please now move your podcast three minutes ahead if you don't want to hear this. About the Babadook. Right, now. Only in that, I don't really think it spoils it, but um, it was great when it seemed to be an allegory about mental health. Yes. And I felt it, 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 it and maybe it wasn't the director, but, or somebody, producers, needed to make it into an exorcist. And there was bells and whistles, the beds moving and all the rest of it by the end. And I thought, oh, I wish it wasn't, wish you hadn't gone the, the normal route. And had you kept it in um, the ambiguity of it's in their mind... And it's this tragic thing of her tussling with this monster, this yeah. uh, this uh, this her uh, illness. It would have been braver and a bit more and, and uh, uh, more horrible in a way. Because when it was that for most of the film, I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, because I just thought, oh, you've just it is just a monster. What's the worst? Oh, God, just... oh no no no! Oh, just please. Well, uh, um, the, the thing that I really love about the film is the guy who plays the sweet love interest. Is also in the Snowtown film. As the most monstrous character. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's brilliant so, to be that Australian guy, yeah. Yeah, and he's amazing, but yeah. I also quite enjoy when you get a subtle hangover of an actor where you're like, mm, I know you, you're a murderer. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. it kind of added to the horror of it. There's like a tiny bit of like, you seem really charming, but I know what you're capable of. Yes, yeah, he's so, so sweet in that role. Um, sorry. No, don't be sorry. This is what the podcast's about. You, everyone talking. It's all yeah. fine. The, uh, I was going to ask uh, quickly, uh, because we are doing a launch uh, here of Dead Funny Uncle, which is the second of the Dead Funny books. And yes. I don't think we talked about it last time on the podcast, but why the... <coughs> so quite often when people say, uh, um, where'd you get your ideas from? Well, it's kind of quite obvious because it may well be observational comedy or something and it's you see thing. But with horror, yeah. that bit of... like the, the story that I've written for Dead Funny Uncle was just from playing hide-and-seek with my son in the park and then having that moment, I don't know if you've had it, where only about 50 seconds when you haven't found them, you then oh go, my oh, my God, oh, my God. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'll go somewhere with that. Yeah. Now, your one was about a child blinded by dog excrement. Yeah. So what? At what point? Was, which is a very funny story and a very dark story, and yeah. has a, has a great. Well, I won't even. I won't say it's very very funny, yeah. uh, as well as very very dark. Uh, I'll just read a bit. So I'm not going to do all of it. It's quite long, but uh, it's some more like a serious thing. It's quite funny. I've never liked dogs. It's called Dog by Reece Shearsmith. I have never liked dogs. I find them dirty and stupid and totally worthless. I don't understand how the mind of someone that has a dog, how can you possibly find time to care for it? The stink out your home, walk along it, scooping up its hot shit off the pavements and grass. Let's go for a lovely walk. Oh, don't forget the little plastic bag to scoop up the endless shit that this creature is going to squeeze out along the way. Never mind about the piss, it can piss where it likes. <laughs> I know that you're thinking this sounds very unreasonable. People are very protective of these idiot creatures. I find it bizarre, there's no value. I have no time for dog owners or their beasts. I suppose, as an introduction, that uh, might be called setting out my stall. I must, at this point, explain my position. I'm not too deluded to recognize my views at first may sound extreme. But I must insist that you hear me out. As you will see, it all comes to bear. From the age of about 11, my summer holidays were spent with my grandparents 
I would be taken on day trips to the seaside and the stately homes of the north of England. It was a curiously pious way to spend long stretches between the summer and the autumn terms of school. I found nothing odd about it, apart from, of course, the pervading sadness that sullied the enforced merriment. Sadness because in the time before I was fostered off to my grandparents, I'd had my two own functioning parents and a super little brother who I loved very much. My brother's name was Elliot. I knew him for 10 years before he was killed and both my parents went mad with the grief of it. You're probably thinking you have cottoned on to the gist of my tragic tale that I've leapt to the conclusion my brother was killed by a dog. A dog attack, mauled and bitten, but that's not what happened. Little Elliot was killed by a dog, yes, but it was the ultimately far worse than had he been simply savaged by one. Elliot died of toxicoriasis, the disease that hides in dog shit, blinding those that fall foul to it. Thus my brother went blind first, and being blind after having had sight is a hell I would not wish upon anyone except dog owners. For it was a dog owner on a day out without, I presume, a little plastic bag about them that sealed my brother's fate. Elliot was blinded by the disease that lives in dog feces. And two years after having lost his sight, he was struck down and killed, having wandered sightlessly into the path of a van delivering cakes. The detail of the cake is slightly absurd, I know, but the mention of Mr. Kipling only seems to make it worse. I heard the accident first. I was in the garden with my parents, a screech and then a thud, the sound of my brother's death. I remember hoping selfishly at the time, to, as time slowed down and swam around me, that it wasn't Elliot's, not for his sake, but for mine. I would be in such trouble if he'd been hurt when he was now so much my responsibility. I had been his eyes since the dog shit took his away. It's odd, but up until that actual death, the guilt had always been, who let him touch the dog shit? How did it end up in his eyes? After this, his actual death, there could be no ambiguity about who was to blame. It was me, ironically enough, because I took my eyes off him. When he ran outside, the driver was already out of the van trying to pull Elliot from under the front wheels. I remember how upsetting it was to see the man tugging his limp arms. Even then, I thought it was probably wrong to be pulling him like that. And I, the man was in shock. He kept shouting that he hadn't seen him and there, there was no time to stop. And even more curiously, I'm not from around here. The rest is as horrible as you might expect. Rushing and screaming and crying and misery. I hope you didn't think this was going to be anything but nasty. There's no way of wrapping up the events nicely. So as you can see, my childhood was ruined by a dog. It can be traced back. It is, unfortunately, that simple. The story, if I'm even telling a story, I'm not sure that I am, doesn't end there. My brother and his death was one thing, but my revenge, my revenge on the lady that owned the dog, the original dog that had blinded my brother, that was another thing. I'm not, I won't read the rest, but there you are, thank you. <laughs> So was that from, what was that from? Um, I think it was, uh, I, I, I wanted to enjoy, I know people love dogs, and I don't, not, I don't hate dogs in the way that the character in the thing hates dogs, but I'm not enamoured of them particularly. I have a cat, but I, I, I wouldn't go around 
killing them, but I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting <laughs> to do a story where I anger all the dog lovers with my with the character's hatred of them and, and, and justified hatred because he explains he had a, a brother that w was blinded and then stumbled into the road because of this terrible chain of events that began with dog excrement and so and it, it was um, that that kicked it off really and it was just and it was an exercise in writing I'd never done one this is the other thing we've spoken about it before I've never actually written a, a, a story a short story I mean I never regard myself as a writer anyway but it was such a difficult thing for me to do, and it sort of came easily once I I, I got the story. But um, have you done any more since? No, not really. Would no, you want I to? I would think I would like quite like to. Yeah. Good, we're doing a third volume, <laughs> <laughs> and that is a contract, Rishi Smith, surrounded by these haunting mosquitoes yes. which are everywhere well, in this room, which is like, the beginning of a Raymond nineteen seventies. We're like in a chemical toilet, surrounded by mosquitoes. The opening shot of the film is an angry butcher. Killing <laughs> a, mo a mosquito. Little yeah, do we know later yeah, when we yeah. see what's left of <gasps> his creep show, isn't it? The guy and he's he's got this really uh, sanitary. It's E.G. Marshall, and it's and, called. And they're creeping up on you. Yes, they all come out of his body. That's right at the end. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's horrible. What's the matter? Bug got your tongue. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Uh, so. You can you tell us anything about? Uh, you may not want to, but Inside Number Nine uh, will be on uh, at the BBC in the autumn. The third it's series, real yes, very exciting. And it, again, it's a, a foray into various uh, dark themes. I think I mean even by our standards, Steve says me that Pemberton, the third series is a very dark series. It's not. I mean, it's, it's horrible actually. There's it's lots dark of, times. I know. Yes, yes. That's uh, what it, why it's possibly come out like that. But. Um, all very different again. Some lighter than others, but I mean, I've got. We're very excited about one. That, I mean, they're all great, but there's one particular one that sort of plays with television, and that's. And we've done this one. We thought, wouldn't it be great to do an episode of Inside Number Nine that's sort of in keeping with its heritage, which is the sort of um, armchair thriller, 1970s um, anthology series from the past. So we've done one completely authentically on old cameras. Huh. And it's, it's broadcast. I mean, um, our producer said, I don't think it will pass its tests as far as there's various technical tests it has to pass before it can be broadcast on proper television. And there's not been a programme like it for, since about 1981. Oh, really? The cameras were sourced and, and they they lasted two days and they broke. And we just got them. And we got the programme. And we rehearsed it for four, three days and then we shot it for over two days just like they would a series in, in those times. And we got Rula Lenska couldn't be more 70s than that and um, it's a really great um, sort of uh, spooky story in the vein of an Nigel Neal or a, a Tales of the Unexpected or a, you know one of those 70s um, style things and completely authentically much more than I thought I thought there'd be an app that would just turn it into a 70s looking <laughs> program but they've done it completely beautifully rendered and the sound is great and um, and how did all the crew find working with that stuff well that was great they had to find the uh, the cameramen that could do it they were all over 70 each ah. one of them and they'd done it and they were so um, pleased to be wheeled, so much like the cameras wheeled out and, and uh, yeah the only people really that know how to do it wow. and they, were, they built the set and it was like you know that thing where you film and then the, the cameras just get wheeled around to the other set and you carry on filming it and it's edited in situ and we did it and uh, not on the other side I think it was at Elstree and it was in the same place where they filmed Beasts Nigel Neal's Beast. so there was a lot of um a lot of echoes and ghosts in the, in, the, in the room as we filmed it. But some really great stories, and um, I, I hope people enjoyed them. Um, they're, all, they're all good. There's, some, there's a 
particularly dark one about I become obsessed with uh, I'm jogging one morning and I might find a shoe in, in the street and I just think what's that what is that shoe and, I, and then my life completely unravels wondering about who's is this shoe and it's a very dark story but um, yeah I think if you've liked the last the ones before you'll they're good they're still up there with we haven't let you down I don't think that's just my opinion. Lovely. Just, I'm thinking of Ben Moore, wonderful writer Ben Moore, an actor. And you remember he used to do a monologue all about uh, just single lost gloves that were found. Oh, right, really? And it was beautiful. But then now, the moment you said that, I had this image of him suddenly waking up and there's just all these clamouring one-gloved people going, I want my glove. Um, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Now, we are uh, about to do uh, our little kind of horror show, because partly for the latitude launching of... Actually, we might need to close the door. My might the fucking Johnny the Baptist shouting so loudly. <laughs> Stupid idiots. Keep that in. Um, I think we're delightful angels. Oh, typical Trotskyist. Um, so... You're someone who's not on tonight, but I did ask if they were going to be on tonight, and then they said they were actually probably too busy to do it, and then it turned out they got asked to do something else, and they've turned up, which is quite embarrassing, is Susie Gage. And I hope that's a nice introduction It's lovely. Sorry. Um, now, you are predominantly a scientist looking at drug research, and uh, also you've done a, your podcast, your new podcast series... Yeah, same way to drugs. Me and Scroobius Pip chatting about recreational drugs, one per episode... And what, what drugs have you done so far? Uh, well, drugs we've talked about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've talked about, um, we've done cannabis, uh, alcohol, tobacco, MDMA and ketamine. And on Monday, I'm meeting Pip again and we're going to do psychedelics, uh, cocaine, um, oh God, I can't remember now, nitrous and then new psychoactive substances, so sort of synthetic cannabinoids and synthetic cathinones, like methadrone. Meth! Uh, the point is that you as well as being very wise and a doctor and all that also are a huge fan of Goblin and other synth-based horror. Very true. I was in a Goblin covers band, no less. Ill wow. Goblini. I played the synth and we occasionally did some Fabio Fritzi as well and that. And we also, on Halloween, played Halloween. The Wait, theme I do want to talk about this, but I want to go back to the drugs. Okay. No, we don't have time. We've only got we've got five minutes for each person. It's about horror. What are the new What are the new drugs? What do they do to people? Well, they're not really that new anymore, and the problem is that they are just slightly tweaked chemicals each time to try and sort of get them to, through loopholes of not being illegal. But they are all now illegal anyway because of this ridiculous new psychoactive substances bill thing. Right. But that's a much bigger conversation than. Okay. And it's available on your podcast. Yeah. She doesn't want to tread on her own territory. So why, what was it? When did you know that you were? Uh, what, what was the first soundtrack? All of those wonderful soundtracks by Vares Saraband, was it? I can't forget the name now of the, the company that would bring out oh, these yeah. synthy soundtracks. Well, so I mean, my Escape from New York was one of the soundtracks that I first listened to and went. OMG, this is incredible. And then also Profondo Rosso was probably the, the goblin one that like got me into all of the others. She starts off with what mad puppet laughed. <laughs> so it's not at all terrifying. <laughs> that's it, that's actually the track. No goblin of just pressing a button that goes <laughs> And it also has in it that kind of la 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 oh. la 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 why is that such a big genre? Spooky children yeah. singing not words. 
Um, I can't answer that, I'm afraid. But it is, oh, isn't it? It's all about drugs. Yeah. <laughs> some some mosquitoes. So popular. <laughs> yeah, Rosemary's Baby as well. It's like. I know that's Suspiria. Whoops. Oh yeah. yeah, that is spooky. But that is a because I find there is something spooky. I'm sure I've mentioned to you before. If sometimes uh, I hear a little bit of kerfuffle upstairs and I walk to the stairs, I have jumped before. If my son is just standing at the top of the stairs, even oh. though it's my son who I love, that kind of like we want you to stay forever, forever. <laughs> <laughs> So what's your favourite, because this is going to be, we, we should do a proper podcast really, but uh, in terms of, uh, I, I should really ask you, what are the best drugs to take with uh, mid-1970s uh, synth soundtracks of Dario Argento films? I don't think you need any, because they're so trippy anyway. Like, all of that kind of, the colours, the vividness in all of the, those films, like in Suspiria, just the, like, the redness and the greenness, it's just so beautiful to watch. I don't, you don't need any kind of mind-altering substances you just need to watch those films watch Fulci films and watch yeah just and do you read horror stories as well or short stories or, or, or novels or is it generally the kind of the music in the films yeah like whistle and I'll come to you and that kind of thing it's like big big fan of that well, this is perfect because we're in Suffolk. Suffolk to me always yeah. feels the coast around here. It, the the first version of it, not the second, which is a beautiful performance by John Herbert, isn't mm-hmm. so good. Is uh, Michael Horton is a mumbling, kind of academic, one of those ones. You know, genuine, and, and it's and he finds a little whistle on the beach. <gasps> Fucking idiot blows into it. Oh, don't Quite blow into clearly. a haunted whistle. <laughs> exactly. Well said. It's a great story. Have you read the story? Yeah, it's amazing. And it's like, that's in a book of short stories, isn't it? And they're just all... What's the book? Who's the author? Or what's it's the, M.R. James, it and it's Ghost Stories from Antiquaries. It's one of the collections yeah. of oh, them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, is there... Is there a way in the way that like fairy stories are passed down? Are ghost stories folkloric in that way that people would have told them for a few hundred years and then someone collected them? I think probably in contemporary or even the last 150 years when that real kind of story is it takes ideas of that kind of thing and it's it's an interesting transition from you know you have these lovely stories where an elderly man who runs an antique store just likes going rambling finds a thing and then it changes to seven topless people bathing in a lake <laughs> and he's really not nearly as good at no point in front of the 30 oh bumble 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 michael horden pops his pants off and goes for a little swim oh i found a little whistle here <laughs> but, so my boyfriend is a folk musician and so some of the folk songs like child ballads the ballads collected by this guy whose name was Child, they're not for children because they're terrifying. So there's one that he performs called Long Lankin, and it's about this like child killer that can sort of creep through walls, and it's a bit like Eugene Toombs from the X Files, but sort of ancient, and it's terrifying and really creepy. And so I think those kind of the idea that people have sung that for five hundred yeah, exactly. years or something. Look, it adds to it. There's, I mean, I'm I'm not superstitious, but at the same time, it feels like it. Is infused with a certain power and depth. Yeah. Because you're like a ghost of something. <laughs> I need to ask you quickly, Josie, because I wanted to get this a little interview with you as well. Yeah. You have, of course, uh, a horror story in the current collection, the yeah. new collection, Dead Funny Encore. Yeah. Is this the first time you've written something which is specifically kind of horror haunting? Yeah, uh, it is. And to be honest, I don't know if I really filled the remit properly because mine is more. Mine's a love story about two ghosts. Um, and I don't think it's very horrific, it's just a bit sad. But it doesn't have to be hor- it's got horrific. Murder in it. It's got murder in it. Not to spoil it. Um, 
But how else do people become ghosts? Well, I'll tell you in the story. It's very beautiful, and it's interesting because when you say that thing that about have you read any um, Robert Aikman at all, Susie? Oh, not for years. I'm, I think I need to dredge it back from my mind. But he writes stories which are that thing where it's not like there's horror, but just briefly you see something under the table. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing, and then the memory remains with you. Yeah, well, I, I mean, people that I really love, I think the person that I'm probably ripping off the most in what I've written is George Saunders, you know? George Saunders writes things that are kind of bleak and horrific, but it's also kind of, everything's normal, everything's normal. Oh, those guys were ghosts! <laughs> you know, like, it's it's got unnerving supernatural elements to it, and it's got a sadness to it. But, um, but I am a big fan of horror as well, and like, but I think... I, I always feel a bit embarrassed when, I, I, because of you, Robin, I got into Amicus and Hammer and lots of older things. But then what I was brought up on is like trashy 80s and 90s <laughs> American horror films that are no good. Well, that's why when we were talking about Creep Show with Reese, where that, because it, it revisits those EC horror things, which unfortunately are very expensive to buy the collections of now, but all of those ones which end with that, I've got my birthday cake, which is in <laughs> Creep Show, but all of those, 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 kind of which a lot of the EC horrors have that yeah. anyway thank you very much these guys for uh, and next time you make an alibi about being too busy and then actually turn up in the field please make sure well, you've I at was, least brought your keyboards with you I was too busy to learn how to play them all again because it's been years since we had to stop the Goblin covers band when Goblin reformed because that was embarrassing so <laughs> freshy and, and timely yeah, well yeah we basically it was our the, everyone saw how popular Il Goblini were, so Goblin <laughs> thought, hang on a minute, we better get back in yeah. on this. I think that's why. They could feel that you, what you did was laid all the groundwork. I think we did. Well, they really did it by writing all the songs in the first place <laughs> in the 70s, but you know. So if we could just end with a little... Daddy's never going away again now. <laughs> La 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 Mother's never gonna be lonely now La 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 You're oh. my mummy No You're not my mummy Oh my god Have you seen that horror film? Oh uh, when the children all become The, the two The like twin boys children. No no it's No It's called like mummy It's not called mummy dearest It's called like mama Or dear mama or something And it's uh, Dutch I want to say But it might not be It could be Danish Could be anything uh, Could be any of them It's Brexit Not <laughs> from around here exactly. It uses English some form shit. of gobbledygook. Anyway, they're all chatting away this stupid language. And it's about this woman who is uh, a TV star, I think, and has gone to have, like, a plastic surgery. And her two twin boys refuse to accept that it's their mother. And things get very intense. But it also, there's, like, a hint. They, they think she's an alien. But it's sort of a little bit ambiguous. It's really good. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. It's Austrian and it's called Goodnight Mummy. It's Austrian and it's called Goodnight Mummy. So, you know, all foreigners chatting in this foreign way that we don't have anymore. Sorry, I am uh, very sad about my country. Um, Little bit of Austrian satire. Thank you very much. Well, Austria's not having a good time. We've had to redo that. They're going to have to redo that presidential election where the Greens narrowly won over the fascists. So, now, interesting, of course, when it comes to um, fascists. Here we go, segue, you see. Someone who's a writer, running occasionally does appear to have well, a little hint of it. It's, of course, Dennis Wheatley. And we're joined by Anna Savory, who... Now, Anna, you have got 
a uh, the first time we met was about a month ago where we were doing a, a, the kind of setup for uh, showing Hammers The Devil Rides Out mm-hmm. I made the mistake of thinking it would be fun to read a bit from it and very quickly went oh my goodness I forgot that this isn't just casual racism it's very much dated some of The Devil Rides Out but you have this incredible Dennis Wheatley story basically yeah right so he's uh, he's loomed large in my life um, I don't know where to start I, I own his library. That's basically what it boils down to. My grandmother took in a dying bookseller who then died and left her loads of books, and she died. And it, it sort of burnt a hole through my family until it reached me. And now I don't have anyone left, and but I have say, thousands of books. What they say in this, they, they have all, each one of them has a little book plate in it. Right, so the frontispiece, yeah, with a picture of the devil who looks a lot like Robert Webb, <laughs> like eerily. <laughs> Uncannily. Um, and I also realised, I hadn't realised until today when I was looking at it, but he's got a saxophone ha! and a magnum of champagne and a cigarillo. Oh, that's a He's great like the, the loosest devil ever. And what does it say on the frontispiece? Oh, so uh, in Latin, the occult library of Dennis Wheatley, and then handwritten below, uh, property of Dennis Wheatley's satanic library, do not remove. So hang on, so all of the book plates say the occult library? Yes, they've all got a cult library in Latin. So the the Barbara Cartland books that you showed last time are technically the occult in Dennis's mind. I believe so, yeah. It's it's odd, the variation. I mean, there was some obvious, like Alistair Crowley made a lot of sense, and then all these Barbara Cartlands and um, (laughs) Marnie Nixon and and kind of golden age Hollywood people. Even Satanists sometimes need a bit of a thrill. Yeah. Everyone, old Satanists love Marnie Nixon because (laughs) she is basically becoming the voice of another being. So it's as if she is possessing Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady. Did you? Yeah. So that's, uh, by the way, uh, non Marnie Nixon fans, look up Marnie Nixon now to understand possession reference. (laughs) Uh, So did you, um, before. That's what we need. Bing! The, uh, what, uh, before you inherited this library, of fa- and it's thousands of books, I don't know how it is. Oh, it's huge. Huge. Where do you keep it? I live around them. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps you. It does. <laughs> you, yeah, you don't keep a satanic <laughs> library. <laughs> well, precisely, no, yeah, I mean, literally. Is it anything you were interested in beforehand? I mean, the it, devil. Well, you know, the devil or sax, saxophones. So either j- jazz or Satan or satanic jazz. But no, the, the actual kind of the world of horror. or how, What did Dennis Wheatley mean to you before you suddenly went, oh, I have 10,000 books I live in? <laughs> no, I, I nothing. I, I mean, I liked, I fancied Charles Gray and I liked Hammer Horror films and I wanted to be Peter Laurie. Um, so there was that. But... I don't think I'd ever really come across him properly. And now I've come across him too much. He's <laughs> really, <laughs> really too present now. Yes, yeah. So you truly believe right. that this library brings visits death upon its owner? It's hard not to believe it when you, you look at how it's stacked up. Um, <laughs> it's gone beyond the anecdotal from your personal familial experience. I would say so, it? yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, the old people, that's fine, they die. But you know, kind of forty-year-old man—that's that's not normal. And within a year, so I think, yeah, I, I believe. But I've, I've done well so far. My my giving bits of it away by gigs. Hmm. I mean, I've had very very poor health, but I've not died yet. So. So you feel that you are keeping it at bay, precisely. And the more you can give away, and 
the books you've given away off the library have people re- reported like a minor injury. Right. So yeah, <gasps> like tinnitus, turned yeah. ankle. Yeah. Yeah. Like a like a thousandth of a death curse. Yeah, definitely. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, they treat wow. me. They treat me like, oh yeah, I've got a cold, so that's that. Yeah. What? Oh fucking hell! When I did that gig with you, and you went, oh, you'd probably like to see these books. <laughs> She must have really hated me at that gig in Genesis Cinema. What a cruel woman. Why have we got her on with us? It's a curse. Can you remember that line? The the um what is that line in where Christopher Lee goes, Do you believe in evil? Do you believe in what's the other thing? It's do you believe in evil? Do you believe in or is it do you believe in the devil? Do you believe in evil? I believe in it as an idea. No, it's fantastic. <laughs> What's that from? It's from The Devil Right Out. Uh, Charles Grayton. My, my favourite line in it is when he, he kind of excuses himself for about a quarter of the film by saying, I need to go and consult some, some texts that are locked at the British Museum and only I can access them. And then off he, off he pops. <laughs> it has got too many characters in it. I mean, Paul Eddington's in it. I feel, as somebody who's recently who's recently started writing screenplays, you can never have too many characters. <laughs> Chuck them in. Give them the same name. Really confusing them. But if it's good enough for Russian novelists to give everyone three names to have a million people in it, then in my screenplay there will be ten activists, none of whom are the main character. Oh, my favourite scene in New York film is that bit where he just goes, Are you Terry? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Brian, who's that? You will be now. La 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 la. What's I your? What's my name? What's? Your... Oh, is it any time for us to go on? You're on in ten minutes. Oh, okay. Um, have you read uh, any? Have, so have you? Have you read Dennis Wheatley now? Then, and, well, and what working, is your favourite? I'm, I'm working through it now. Um, oh, what is my favourite? You know, I genuinely think it might be The Devil Rides Out. I mean, I warmed to it after you read it aloud on stage to the shock and, and genuine horror of our audience. Um, yeah, no, I, I love it. I think it's casual racism, not so casual racism aside. It's a good one. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I recently inherited, as Robin said, a really phenomenally massive and weird collection of books. And before you say that sounds like a wonderful thing to inherit, I should specify that there is a gothic catch as there so often is with things left to people in wills. And in this case, it's that all of the books carry a terrible and fatal curse. This isn't just me being weird, they really do. My first clue was that over a quarter of the 1,500 books in the collection contain this frontispiece. I don't know how clearly you can see this, but I think we can all agree that this isn't a frontispiece from a book that isn't cursed. This fellow here, with the goat legs and the horns, that's the devil, looking, I think, suspiciously like Robert Webb. Because you'd think it would be David Mitchell with his dark void eyes and posh manner, but it's always the one you least suspect. And uh, up here in Latin, it reads the occult library of Dennis Wheatley, and handwritten below each of the books with this in, in what I presume is either Dennis's or the devil's handwriting. It reads, property of Dennis Wheatley's satanic library, do not remove. Someone at some point though has removed them in that they're no longer in Dennis Wheatley's satanic library, they're now in my dining room. I think the man who removed them from their original location was the same man who brought them into my family bloodline. My grandmother took in a dying bookseller. She didn't know him, 
We didn't know him. He came out of the night, but she was suddenly overcome with charity and said, oh, creepy bookselling man who is dying, who has possibly recently broken into the home of Dennis Wheatley, stolen a portion of his library, and is now suffering the occult consequences. Would you like to come and do the last of your dying in my house? And he said, oh, thanks. I'd love to come and die in your house, thank you very much. And as a reward, I'll leave you and your family all my cursed books. Eventually, in the manner of dying booksellers, he died. And he left all of his books to my grandmother, who within a year died. Who left all of the books to my grandfather, who within a year died. Who left all of the books to my father, a young, healthy man, who within a year died. And now, all of the books belong to me. I've had them for, I'd say, just under a year. I feel fine now, not making long-term plans. I say I feel fine. Uh, about a week after I moved them into my house, I had a sort of mystery illness, one of those ones you think went out of fashion along with opium, like a real Victorian-style affair where your torso rattles and or the glands come up down your neck in a chain of death that seems to spell out Dennis Wheatley. And the image of Robert Webb as the devil swims before your feverish eyes. And no one could diagnose it, but my doctor put it down as just one of those things. Just one of those unnamed gothic shaking illnesses that people sometimes get when they own a satanic library. Also, my knee flew out of its socket for no reason, and uh, you'll have noticed I'm standing perfectly statically on stage, because if I roam around, sometimes it just flies off at a jaunty angle, and I have to schlock it agonizingly back into place. Also, in the last 10 months, I have had five root treatments and one round of general surgery to remove a tracking infection from above my front teeth that, if left untreated, would have spread to my sinus, and then on into my brain, killing me, in the words of my dentist, in the most horrible manner imaginable. But, I mean, there's no reason to put any of that down to the 1,500 books belonging to occult writer Dennis Wheatley containing pictures of the devil that now fill my, uh, my house and life. Rufus Hound. Josie and I... That's why Josie's not here yet. Um, <laughs> I'm very angry and I'm going on a bicycle ride for communists. Josie! <laughs> um, now, you've written a story for. You wrote a story for the first Dead Funny collection. I you did. You've now read one, uh, written one for Dead Funny Uncle. Did you imagine? We've only just started, Josie. I don't mind, I did an impression of you, and everyone will believe it was you. And. Um, <laughs> I bet that was kind, thought Josie. Um, the. Uh, um, you, when you wrote the first one, was that the first kind of horror thing you'd written? Uh, yes. Um, I realised looking at the books I buy my son, I'm trying to instil in him the same kind of love of things that go bump in the night that I had when I was growing up. There was a book I had about Dracula, and in it there was um, uh, a, a, an incantation that you could repeat that saw off uh, Dracula. And it was Canty Canty, Elmeranti, Jextima Sullivan, Fix It, Fix It. And I remember it to this day because as a kid I remember reading it and going, well, this is genius. If I ever come across a vampire, all I need to know is this and I can see them off. Um, and it's stuff like that. It sort of stuck. Like, those times as a child that you've, you are aware that you are older now, that the world is not the same, many of those moments were had 
for me through fantasy fiction and horror fiction. So what is it in this uh, in the new story that you've just done? Uh, oh. Um, for anybody listening to the podcast, oh, okay, the there's we'll some right actual admin happening. The people running the stage are in this room, essentially telling us we need to get on with it. Yeah. Robin's uh, wearing a hat and we'll looking just, old. Just Robin Josie's and Josie. looking He's eager. Robin and Josie. We'll be there and in three minutes. Yeah. Everybody Lovely. else is. And we're and, so and we're, we're back about to do room. a. Uh, we're about to show. So uh, going back to your uh, canty canty omaranti. Oh no, I've said it backwards. Ah, ah no. Rings of vampire, <laughs> Your new story, what is the inspiration behind that, the new one for Dead Funny Encore? The God's Honest Truth is this. I watched three episodes of Inside Number Nine on the same <laughs> night and went to bed and dreamt an entirely new episode of Inside Number Nine, beginning, middle and end. And um, because of being on Dead Funny Volume 1, I had Reese Shearsmith's email address because we were on a round robin of, can you all please fucking sort out your print proofs? <laughs> uh, and so I very casually said, look, I know the whole thing about Inside Number Nine is it's written by you and Steve. On the off chance that another series rolls around and you're one short or something happens, I've got something ready to go. And in the kindest way possible, he said, well, we haven't even had news of a third series yet, so it may not happen. I, realising that it probably is entirely their thing and that is the whole point of it, then immediately stood back and said, well, look, if you need one, you know where I am. That never happened. Two weeks later, Johnny Mains rings up. We're on for number two. And I'm like, great. Well, I'll just um, write out the dream that I had about the episode of Inside Number 9 that doesn't exist uh, can I just ask what is the in, in one sentence what's the new story about um, what does it seem to be about uh, the thing about vampires is people love the idea of being a vampire it's about that and we're, you're now going to be reading an H.P. Lovecraft uh, story on stage, which is? Uh, the Outsider, written in 1921. Short, four pages, but uh, a really good example of writing that just conjures up something unpleasant. Very much looking forward to um, hearing that roof sound. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Very excited. Essentially, this is all about horror stories. You can't really even take a passing, a passing glance at horror stories without hearing the name H.P. Lovecraft. Let me hear it from my Cthulhu fans. Anyone actually read Call of Cthulhu? Lies. Lies. No one's actually read it. People just own the t-shirt. H.P. Lovecraft wrote um, lots and lots of short stories. I'm going to read you a short story. It is four pages of tightly written A4 written in 1921. The perfect thing for midnight at a festival. Am I right? Sing along with the chorus. This is called The Outsider. This is how it goes. Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque gigantic and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those seer memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. 
I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridor seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere, as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost of accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled and decaying like the castle. To me, there was nothing more grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strode some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events and thought them more natural than the coloured pictures of living beings which I found of the mouldy books. For such books, I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech... I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth, because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forest. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back, lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So, through endless twilights, I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for, then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic I could resist no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last, I resolved to scale that tower, full though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight, I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased, and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, blank, ruined and deserted and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress, for, climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mould assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, 
and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure that I might peer out and above and try to judge the height I had attained. All at once, after an affinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my hand touch a solid thing and knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness, I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher, I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended, since the slab was the trap door of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled slowly through and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed. As I lay, exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, but hoped when necessary to pry it open again. Believing I was now at a prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows, that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble, bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment, so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then, unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked, but with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known. For shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant full moon, which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dare not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demonical of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror to what I now saw, with bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of dizzying prospects of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on a level through the grating nothing less than solid ground 
decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and now even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic, but was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was or what I was, or what my surroundings might be, Though, as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in and that some of the well-known towers were demolished whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never, seemingly, heard human speech before and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I had ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamour and panic, several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen, at a casual inspection of the room seeming deserted, but when I moved to one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there, just a hint of motion, beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly, and then... 
with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full, frightful vividness, the inconceivable, indescribable and unmentionable monstrosity which by its simple appearance changed the merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abominable and detestable. It was a ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity and desolation, the putrid, dripping idolon <laughs> of unwholesome revelation, the awful barring of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror, I saw it eaten away and bone-revealing outlines and a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape and in its mouldy, disintegrating apparel, an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort toward flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me, my eyes bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred and shooed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will the attempt however was enough to disturb my balance so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling and as I did so I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing whose hideous hollow breathing I half fancied I could hear Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close, when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarish and hellish accident, my fingers touched the rotting outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle in the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized, most terribly of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos, there is balm as well as bitterness. And that balm is Nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second, I forgot what had horrified me. And the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream, I fled from that haunted and accursed pile and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone trap door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls of the night wind and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nefrenkar in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me, save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save for the unnamed feasts of Nicotris beneath the great pyramid. Yet in my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For although Nepenthe has calmed me, 
I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame. Stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, all of these are free, but if you would like to donate so that we can keep making our full-length versions of the book shambles, Josie Robbins' book shambles, then please go to cosmicgenome.com slash shambles and go and click on the Patreon link, and then we can keep making as many of these as possible, and we're having a lovely time doing them. Hope you like listening to them, really. <laughs>